welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at HIMS Media, and I'm joined today by Associate Editor Dave Moyo. Hey, Dave. Hey, Jonah. We're going to talk today about the role that the FDA has played in the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, especially around the approval or lack thereof of at-home tests. And then at the end of the call, we're going to talk a little bit about another FDA-related topic, uh, namely a little bit of an update on the pre-cert process based on an interview Dave did recently with the chief medical officer of one of the companies involved. But let's start with the testing. Dave, lay out the story a little bit for me. Sure thing. And it's uh, quite a story. It actually spans at least a couple of weeks. So as we're all aware, COVID-19 is upon us and one of the major shortcomings of the U.S.'s response to the pandemic has generally been a lack of testing. Much of that is supply constrained as well as um, the number of manufacturers of the tests, the number of organizations that are in a position to offer or even conduct or work with a lab to have these tests evaluated once they're collected. So a few weeks ago, the FDA updated their policy, which would allow testing by Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendment Certified Labs, or CLIA Certified Labs, even if they had not acquired emergency use authorization for their COVID-19 diagnostic. That update went live in, on March 16th, and from the language included in that update, a number of uh, organizations that were in a position to offer at-home testing believed that their offerings would be uh, viable and allowed underneath the new uh, policy. Uh, in some cases, some of them, like NERCs, are best known for telehealth prescriptions of birth control. Um, Carbon Health is a collection of primary care, um, technology-enabled primary care offices on the West Coast. And some of these companies were just offering to work with labs and apply uh, telehealth consultations alongside these at-home sample collection kits. And that's an important distinction that we'll probably come back around to, sample collection versus at-home testing. So the other week had a number of these companies, some of the names you already mentioned, uh, NERCs, Everly Will, My Lab Box, Carbon Health, put out press releases and announcements saying starting next week or starting in a couple days, starting eventually, we will begin offering uh, a service where we mail you an at-home test collection kit. The consumer would uh, self-collect their own sample, overnight it to the company offering it and their CLIA lab partner. And depending on if the test came back positive or negative, many of these would offer a telehealth consultation to help the individual with their next steps. So the curveball came on Friday evening when the FDA put out an emergency alert to consumers warning that it has not permitted any at-home testing services or products to be marketed. And that includes, obviously, all the ones that we were talking about, specifying that the uh, release the of the EUA requirement specifically did not apply to the at-home testing. And this was then further clarified on Saturday with an FAQ that the 
agency put out addressing both consumers and uh, companies offering these services. And the result of this was a little bit of confusion over the weekend from these same companies who maybe when they only saw the Friday update but not the Saturday FAQ were still unsure why their products were being told that they weren't allowed. Or going back to reference the March 16th update, which again, as they were there, the perception wasn't 100% clear on the distinction between uh, these CLIA labs versus um, doing the same process, but involving at-home test collection. As per the FDA's FAQ, the policies outlined in the Policy for Diagnostic Tests for Coronavirus Diseases 2019, which was the March 16th update, do not apply to at-home testing, including self-collection of samples to be sent to a lab- clinical laboratory, which is a very, very hard line in the sand, saying that no matter what we said for pretty much every variant of a test that may or may not be permitted based on our relaxed guidance, if it happens at home, it is 100% not allowed per our decision as of this time. So that's a pretty bold decision by the FDA. Uh, Do we have a sense of uh, why they decided to draw that line, what the the risk and the concern there is? Well, my understanding is they haven't put out an official, this is why we have made this decision. But in speaking with some of the companies who are offering these services, Um, and their reactions to the updated announcement. There are some concerns about whether a consumer-collected sample will be as viable in certain methodologies of testing. Uh, You might have seen some of the quotes going around that taking one of these samples is like reaching through your nose up into your brain and twisting. It is not the most comfortable thing in the world. And you can imagine if you're inflicting that on yourself, you might not go all the way. Um, there are some other concerns with uh, the shipping process, exactly how these samples are being passed around, maybe a little bit of um, privacy and safety concerns because they're passing through so many hands, so many different services. But the main concern I've seen is the whether the swabs are going to be effective and whether that one or two day delay between mailing the test off and receiving your eventual result might not be quick enough for an individual to go without their positive um, diagnosis yet. They decide to go outside because they haven't heard anything. So sort of a uh, accuracy and a behavioral concern were the top two I was hearing. Right. And at some point, a bad test is worse than no test if it has too high a false positive or a false negative rate. So is that the end of the story? Is there more? Oh, no, there's definitely more. Um, just on the note of whether at-home sample collection is accurate, there is a new effort being launched in the uh, Seattle area. Um, a couple companies are collaborating as well as the local public health authorities um, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a notable name as well, that does offer um, at-home sample collection and delivery services. And that's being posited a little bit more as a research effort So I have to imagine that the agency will keep an eye on that to see if the results they're getting are roughly on par with a uh, provider and lab-headed effort. 
And I know that there was another paper that came out in the last week that, while still early, is hinting that maybe certain types of um, patient samples aren't will uh, will yield similar results to those of a healthcare professional. But the story does continue specifically in that uh, a lot of these companies, after they heard the update from the FDA, rescinded their services. Some of them offered make goods to those who maybe already purchased a box, along with instructions to destroy their box immediately. Oh, so some of them had already gone out in the mail? Uh, not very many, but yes, some of them had. Carbon Health, in particular, has put out a number of blog posts, um, their head in response to the FDA's updates and in response to some inquiries from members of Congress about how this could happen. Uh, you can go to Carbon Health's blog and look up his updates. He's been fairly transparent about all this, of what their timeline was, why they made the decisions they did. And in this case, they had sent out a couple dozen tests paid tests, um, they were already purchased by these individuals and they updated them with instructions to destroy the box and they're offering them priority access to the in-person testing services that Carbon Health is facilitating. As of now, there haven't been any other major updates in terms of a test suddenly becoming available or the FDA relenting its position. Although it's worth noting that at least one of the companies that we covered prior to the no at-home tests our cleared announcement with Scanwell Health. Scanwell is interesting because they are a digital health company already offering at-home urinary tract infection testing through uh, a process that actually involves the user's smartphone. And the one of the benefits of that approach is that they get their results very quickly. There's no um, mailing the sample back and forth. Uh, they made an announcement around the same time as everybody else, but the difference was that they are licensing a different type of test um, from a firm in China. It's a rapid serology test as opposed to the uh, PCR types that are being used by most other um, CLIA labs. And they felt very good in the, uh, the wake of the FDA's announcement since they were already targeting about five or six weeks from the announcement, is they were they had made the decision to go through the EUA process, and they attributed it to their history working with the FDA in at-home testing, that they had a hunch that maybe something like this will still need the agency's go-ahead before it should be pushed out to the consumers. But they're very confident that their serology-based approach and the benefits of that, which again... Uh, fairly quick results and a much easier to collect sample than the uh, up the nose method. So what does it use rather than a nasal swab? It uses a serum sample, which much like the rest of um, the serum sample and the uh, antibody testing process comes from the Chinese firm they've licensed the technology from. And it sounds like they're going to combine it with their uh, digital friendly platform, which is the smartphone component, the um, artificial intelligence looking at being able to look at the test and derive the result there. And then from that test result receipt, they would connect the, um, they would connect individuals with their partner telehealth organization, which I believe is Lemonade Health, for a consultation. 
But what's the sample collection method? I can't give you the specific of how the serum is drawn, but my understanding is that it is a blood serum drawing. Okay. But it was described to me by their chief medical officer as being much more uh, fail, foolproof or harder to mess up than the uh, nasopharyngeal collection. This has been a really interesting story, I think, because it it has uh, sort of put on stark display all of the tensions and contrasts that we're accustomed to seeing in the digital health world between rapid innovation and important safety-promoting regulation. Uh, but it's all played out on this small, fast stage. Absolutely. And... I should be clear that a lot of these companies who had to pull back their uh, services don't totally feel like they were the ones in the wrong. They're, I think that some of them are, they won't, they didn't, won't come out and say it. They'll have a, uh, we understand that the FDA is doing a juggling act. There's a lot to balance. They're moving so fast and they have to keep up accuracy, prevent fraud. But I think the, uh, the undertext there is a little bit of this was ambiguous and maybe next time we understand things are moving fast, but the agency has to provide a little bit clearer guidance in the future so that we don't invest these resources and get people's hopes up. There's so much demand for tests and so much desire on the part of digital health companies to help in any way they can. It really it makes sense to me on every level why this would have played out the way that it did. Yeah, and some of the companies have noted that and rather than provide the at-home sample collection kits to consumers, they've now repurposed those packages and are sending them to providers in their area who are offering the services to try to inc- increase the supply and, you know, help the global situation. That's great to hear. So at-home testing for COVID-19 may still be a thing of the future, uh, but it's not a thing of the present. Correct. At least in the U.S., I understand that there's a similar system starting up in the UK. At least one company is starting to announce an at-home test service. Um, I will say it's a little bit out of my expertise area, but we'll see what the UK regulators will have to say about that. So let's move on to our other topic. The FDA is also continuing to some degree with business as usual. Um, You spoke recently to someone about the pre-cert program. Uh, We haven't heard anything about that for a while. Tell me about that conversation and how it came about. Absolutely. So pre-certification program, just as a ground-level explanation, it's an effort from the FDA to recognize that, especially with software and digital health in this day and age, it's very common for a software-based product to receive frequent updates or iterations and as it stands, many of these will require another 510K clearance, go through the entire submission process again if you're adding a new feature to your platform, for instance. And, you know, healthcare may not move as fast as technology, but when you blend the two together, there's a lot of um, opportunity for innovation. So the FDA has been, for years now, putting together a uh, test experimental program that rather than clear individual 
pieces of software as medical devices, they will um, sort of do a more full-bodied review of the company that is creating these devices and decide whether they're or not they're a trusted provider of these products. And then the theory would be that every time one of these trusted companies is making an update or a new feature for their product, the FDA doesn't have to review it immediately. And the reason that it's come up again is that this week, Air Therapeutics, maker of prescription digital therapeutics, so far for um, addiction treatments, came out with the news that its third product, Somrist, uh, which is designed as a therapy for adults with chronic insomnia, did receive marketing authorization from the FDA. And what makes this noteworthy is that Pair Therapeutics is one of the nine companies that's working with the FDA during the uh, dry run of its 1.0 working model of the pre-certification program. And in the summer announced that Somris would be the very first to go, you know, be put through the ringer. They conducted in tandem a traditional 510K and went through the FDA's 1.0 working model. And as Jonah mentioned, I was able to speak with their chief medical officer um, yesterday, in fact, and get a little bit of a firsthand about what the process was like for Pear. Was it an exceptional burden? And whether other companies should be looking to this as an option once the full pathway is revealed. So what are some of the most interesting things you learned on that call? Um, It was definitely all about the excellence appraisal. The excellence appraisal is what the FDA refers to when it comes in and it looks at the processes that a company has in place. And the chief medical officer of PAIR, Dr. Yuri Marzic, stressed that this is more than a traditional audit. Um, a lot of healthcare companies, uh, healthcare device makers, are accustomed to performing self-audits and being ready for a federal audit. But... He wanted to stress that this was a little bit more. Specifically, he wanted to stress that the FDA is not just looking at the quality of the products that are being put out or the quality check measures. They're looking at the clinical aspects, the what are you doing to prepare for this seeing real-world use. They're looking at the processes of what is a company doing throughout the development process to identify areas in which they could be improving their pro- their own process and their own product. Is there that sort of self taking into self account built into the company's normal structure? There was a perception at some point that the pre-cert program would be an a fast lane or an easy street. Uh, it sounds like that's not the case. It sounds like it's it's actually quite a challenging path to go through. Yeah, it's. Definitely not for everybody. I think the analogy that we often hear is that it's sort of like the TSA's uh, fast security check service, where if, if you're going on a plane two or three times a month, maybe you'd want to look into this to speed up your uh, time in the airport. But if you're only going on a plane maybe once a year, this isn't for you. Yuri used that exact example and said, hey, if you're making one or two medical devices, software product medical devices over the next few years, you probably don't need to go through this. But if you view software as a medical device or even software that affects human health 
as a long-term focus of your company and something that you're going to be releasing multiple products regarding, it's something that you might want to look into for your future. Now, it is more of a burden than the traditional 510K, but he was very clear that at no point is it a burden. It's understandable what the FDA is moving in to evaluate. And for Pear's part, he said it was a rather good experience. It was engaging much of the team that normally wouldn't be speaking to regulators and helping them assess their own process. The interesting wrinkle here is that by design, it's going to be a little bit different for every type of company. Uh, Pear Therapeutics, a digital therapeutics maker, is a bit different than Apple, who's a bit different from Samsung, who's a bit different from Roche. And part of the challenge, and what he said, maybe the reason that nothing's set in stone yet, is that the FDA does need to gauge how it can be inclusive of all these company types, all these product types, but not ask for unnecessary requirements if it doesn't apply to Pear versus Roach. So maybe their experience was a, a little bit atypical. One, because they're the test dummy. Two, because they're doing a 510K concurrently. But in general, he said that it was definitely manageable. It didn't seem like anything that was being asked was out of question, completely unnecessary, and that the FDA is conscious of the burden that they are placing on these companies. So ignoring the current uh, state of global chaos, when what was the timeline like? What was the FDA originally thinking about when this would go into full effect or when there would be another round of, uh, of test runs? And as far as you know, has that changed? Um, so far, the FDA hasn't really come out and said very much of anything for a good amount of time. They were working through a one-year pilot of the working model that started at the beginning of 2019. In theory, it was supposed to end at the end of 2019. They released a mid-year update last summer, as expected. Um, at one point in the earlier part of the year, they actually opened up the program for any other companies that might be interested in uh, testing out the new pathways. But noticeably, they haven't come out and put out the uh, post-mortem document or any other further guidance after that one-year conclusion. So they must still be reviewing the data to some point or the process of getting some clearances through or taking longer than expected. For instance, the first one just made it through, announced that it's been cleared, and it's uh, almost three months after the test run was supposed to initially end. So... Could take a little longer than it was originally envisioned, even for reasons that have nothing to do with COVID nineteen. I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, it's also worth noting that this started, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, under Scott Gottlieb's leadership. He's since left the FDA. They have a new regime there. Uh, is there any sense that the enthusiasm for this program or the the sense of the need for it has? changed at all? Uh, I haven't gotten that impression. Over the past year or so, I've been to uh, conferences and events in the local area that were focused on digital therapeutics or healthcare software. And they've had representatives from the FDA there. And considering that half of their audience are digital therapeutic companies, those questions do come up during the Q&A sessions 
or even maybe that was the focus of a presentation. And from all intents and purposes, it seems as if they're still moving forward. Um, certainly paired didn't seem to signal that the agency was having second thoughts or anything along those lines with their recent announcements. And it, you know, it is hard to say a uh, major regime chase. And I believe there's a couple interim heads of the FDA in between even Gottlieb and what we have now. Well, it's good to hear that that's continuing and, um, a really interesting story about the testing at the beginning of the pod. I expect we'll hear some updates about that too before too long. Do you think there's any lessons to take away from that experience for other folks in digital health who are looking to see how they can become involved and help out in the current crisis? Uh, specifically speaking about the COVID-19 at-home testing saga? Yeah. Well, I would have to imagine step one, if you're looking to offer a new service and you're not 100% sure whether or not it is currently allowed under the release or the loosened guidelines, maybe try to check in with the FDA before you get going. It might save them some uh, unnecessary resource cost and time. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity within what has already been established. And we've seen a lot. Telehealth is the, uh, the gung-ho story here in digital health. Every telehealth provider has stressed, if my inbox is any indication as everybody else's, they are stressing that their volume is way up. They're trying to offer more and more services. And we've seen some very encouraging action out of CMS and other government bodies looking to facilitate more of the time of uh, remote services. And speaking of remote, the FDA also is loosing its guidelines on how remote monitoring products can be used if it's related to COVID-19 or COVID-19 concurrent conditions. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in terms of remote, digital, and things that do not involve face-to-face contact, as we know, being a very infection-conscious community as we all are now. Anything that can avoid that is definitely a plus. But again, absolutely double check where it falls with the very fast moving updates and changes into the, uh, from policymakers. Well, thanks so much, Dave, for the update and for joining me. We are of course, recording this podcast remotely from home and we'd encourage all of you, if you're in a job or a position that allows you to do so, to also stay home as much as possible to flatten the curve. Um, but we'll keep bringing you digital health and health tech updates, uh, even from our our current situation. We also want to hear your stories, especially around the COVID-19 crisis. We have an email address open, yourstories@hims.org, and we would love for readers of our publications, listeners to this show, to send us a note, um, talk about what you've seen, what you've experienced, and lessons that you've learned that you think will help other people in healthcare professions. We're going to be sharing those on our website in a weekly bulletin. Um, so that's your stories at hymns.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hymns Cast, and stay safe. Mm-hmm.